Hello, I'm 4020, and joining me as always is 60s. This is the Tip Sheet Round 13 review. How's it going, mate? It's going very well, mate. I can get used to this winning habit. <laughs> it's not a bad not a bad thing to be having. Well, it's lucky that the winning warmed you up because yesterday the boys would have been chilled to the bone, eh? It certainly looked like that at the end of the game when they were having the conversation with Dylan Brown post <laughs> Yeah, I think Bra- Brown like and Guffo both um, sort of made it obvious to the media that they were pretty cold. <laughs> All right, so let's let's get right into it. Uh, Parramatta Eels 14, Cronulla Sharks 12. Try scorers for the Eels being Dylan Brown and Dylan also getting the try assist to Kane Evans. Uh, Mitchell Moses, two from two for the conversions from goals and also one from one for a penalty conversion attempt. For the Sharks, Jesse Ramian got on the board at the 26th minute and then Ronaldo Molotalo had a double, including, I mean, both of them were pretty sensational tries, actually. One where I think the pass was probably forwards from Sean Johnson, but the actual catch from Molotalo was insane. And the second one, the put down, where he managed to, Dylan Brown arrested him with a, a pretty great tackle attempt. He managed to free his arm and get it down in the wet conditions. So... Uh, Parramatta Eels uh, scored one less try than opposition, and if I'm not mistaken, that's the first time since 2013 that the excuse me, puppy. Sorry, boys, I've, I've got a puppy in the background crying at me. But the Parramatta Eels first time since 2013 that they've beaten an opponent by scoring less tries than them. So interesting little um, factoid there. What did you make Mate, of you, it, right? Well, first of all, I'm impressed with that stat that you're able well, to pull out of I mean, the I, proverbial. I, I'm, I'm pinching that sort of stuff off the the old Twitterverse, so. I'm not sure who pulled that one out, though. So if I can find credit, I'll give it credit during the course of this podcast. Look, I've got a confession to make. It has to do with Parramatta's winning and losing habits. It relates to my lucky jersey. I've got to confess it. On the two occasions that we've lost this year, I wasn't wearing the lucky jersey. <laughs> Every win has come at the same time that I'm wearing the lucky jersey. There was a third time where I wasn't able to wear the lucky jersey, and that was the game against the Dogs. <laughs> I got home, I put on the jersey as while well, there was still 20 minutes to go, and the boys came through. So there you go. You can, you can put it all down to me. Whether you hate me for the losses or <laughs> love me for the wins, it's up to you. The season rides and dies on, on 60s jersey choice. Well, it used to rely on my punt. Yeah. But because the uni- because I'm not punting on Parramatta anymore, the universe can't find a way to, well, was struggling <laughs> for a way to find out how I determined Parramatta victory. So now it comes down to the jerseys. All right. So by the numbers, this game had some interesting results. Uh, possession was 51% in favour of the Cronulla Sharks. Uh, time possession also slightly favoured the Sharks in a similar sort of split, 27-48. Uh, minutes and seconds to 26.42 for the Parramatta Eels. Um, completion rates are very similar for both teams. 76% for the Sharks, 31 from 41 completed sets, whereas Parramatta are at 75%, 33 from 44. So we actually had more, as, as of last week, more sets, or just about the same amount of sets, but um, between six agains and shorter set like runs, we, we managed to have less time possession, less possession, which is very interesting. Um, Sharks, I think there was a couple of moments. Can I just, just interrupt yeah, there? Of I course. think there was a couple of a couple of moments where we went for the early kick, and that probably yeah, uh, exactly. And we managed to get back to back sets off the off them, except for the one where Mitch Moses rushed it. But yeah, that, yeah. that is an interesting point. And in that there was a completed set there, but it was only like two or three tackles into possession, so that would yeah. influence both uh, possession uh, and time possession rates. Um, Sharks yeah. ended up um, with a, a few more, uh, quite a few more runs than us. Um, um, but the meterage wasn't as big as you would have thought. So they had 29 more runs than us, 189 160, but the meterage was only 1564 versus 1495. So the per-run per basis, Parramatta were more efficient. Um, we had more post-contact meters, way more line breaks, way more, uh, about slightly more tackle breaks. Um, we, I think we might have recorded a, a season-low play-the-ball speed of 4.07 seconds, which is not unsurprising considering the uh, conditions. But the Sharks are at 3.3, so that keeps that trend alive. Um, yeah, not... Not one match this year have the Eels played the ball faster than the no. opposition. And I imagine some of that would be tactically us trying to con- like avoid conceding uh, uh, errors in the play of the ball or whatnot, but it also is frustrating, isn't it, when we're such a dominant ruck team to be handicapped with such an issue in terms of play of the ball speed, isn't it? And not, not get the... Not, when I say that, perhaps not get the, uh, the payout in set restarts that you would feel adequate. Yeah, it's one of my grievances around the set restarts. You know, I'm not 
a huge fan of the six again rule, despite the fact that Parramatta's performing quite well this year under that rule. And I know that there's a whole lot of other ways that the six again can be called beside slowing, actually slowing up the play of the ball. However, that speed of the play of the ball is a is a big factor, you know, whether it be hands on the ball in the in the ruck or um, wrestling or just holding down for a bit too long. And it's something that we're not guilty of doing, as evidenced by the ruck speed that we allowed the opposition. Uh, I suppose the payoff is that we've done reasonably well when it comes to uh, penalties during a game. Last two so, weeks we have, including the Dogs game, and then this week where we won the count 7-2, We've definitely been on the, the positive side of the count. Although last week there was a, a, a sort of slew of um, indiscretions against uh, Latin Zelezniak, I believe, who um, infringed about two or three times personally, which sort of helped blow out the penalty count that way. Um, yesterday it was the Sharks being inside 10 metres. The referees had obviously keyed into it and penalised them multiple times inside our red zone for them being too aggressive on the jump. And in and, and saying that, um, Dylan Brown profited off that, didn't he? They were miles offside for his first try. And he throws the big dummy, and there's no one there to, to um, wrap him up as he dives over. So um, that's that really does come down to the heads up play, isn't it? Looking looking to see what's in front of you and playing what's in front of you, rather than just automatically I have to throw the pass. Mm-hmm. Looking at what's there, taking advantage of what's there, and he under he underplayed the smarts involved in it, and when he was asked to talk about the plays that he contributed to. But I think there's a, a lot to be said for someone like him. It's typical of how he's always played the game. He doesn't get rushed into things. It was a terrific bounce-back game from young Dylan after a couple of weeks where he struggled for consistency, I suppose, between linking up to his outside men and just keeping focused on the game plan. Uh, yesterday, he was like on point, laser-focused on the game plan. Um, his runs looked like he was going to threaten to break out a big carry or a try it's almost every possession. And, and I mean, it turns out that he scored our, uh, one of our tries and set up the other one. So, and on top of that, there was also a huge 40 minute carry where he bailed out Blake Ferguson on our goal line on a, on a 50, 50 knock on call that went our way. Cause I'll freely admit that's a 50, 50 call because even if mechanically the ball goes for um, backwards, that, that is almost always called a knock on, not always, but almost always called a knock on. So the Eels definitely got one call there, but the two Browns were absolutely immense for us. And I think they were, probably the difference between the two teams. If you were giving a 3-2-1, and, and let's even touch on that now, seeing as though that you've raised it, I think you'd you'd go 3-2 um, to the Browns, mm-hmm. and then there's probably a distance to the third, which in my mind would be Gutho, but it's, as far as I'm concerned... Yeah, you go, you go Gutho or... Maybe one of the bookends because I know June's had a soft drop, but um he also had some big moments in that game too. So him him and Reg once again were very good in, t- in testing conditions. But between those two and Guffo, I think you can um, argue for the one for sure. I think when you've got a fullback, who correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think he came up with any errors in a game like that. And one of the most pressured positions on the field with kicks and uh, being asked to make carries. I think it was an outstanding effort from Guffo in his 100th game for the club, and, and pretty it was, much it typifies. Was... Yeah, pretty much typifies his his form every week for the mm-hmm. Eels. And it was good to see the boys rally after four or five weeks where we struggled to execute the game plan and and sort of be ourselves. Yesterday wasn't perfect, and I'm not going to tell you it's perfect, but I think yesterday was that sort of back to basics game that sort of helped us rediscover who we were. And I think all 17 boys. Even guys that struggled like Oregon or <clears throat> sorry, I've got my puppy back crying. But um guys like Oregon who had a you know rough game off the bench, everyone sort of just rolled up their sleeves and put in in absolutely testing conditions. So yeah, it was great to see the boys get up for a milestone game. That's been a real point of emphasis for us this year, hasn't it? Yeah, most definitely. If I was to be critical of anyone, I'd probably be a little bit critical of our wingers. <laughs> yeah, the, the boys on the flanks did struggle, um, for differing reasons. Um we've got I talk about getting back to basics, but um, there's a couple of basics that those two might need to be 101 on again because um, throwing Harbridge passes 20, 25 metres across the park in torrential conditions, not a great idea, Blake. And trying to ground the ball on the side of the ball instead of down pressure, not a great idea, um, 
uh, I was about to say Wonga, but Micah? Yeah, I'm probably not as critical of Blake Ferguson as some might be. Only reason being, I thought Fergo had an outstanding first half, was doing all of the tough yards with his carries. That moment with that pass was one of the worst moments you could <laughs> hope for in a game. It's it was beyond beyond description. I, I don't know how, how you hang out a teammate the dry when it's absolutely pissing down rain like it was, but that's what Fergo did to Junior. <laughs> Apart from that obvious brain fart, it I thought that Fergo he, he had definitely more than a decent. Game. He had um some great runs up the middle too. It is easy to discredit them because of those couple of errors, especially that Harbour Bridge pass. But he had some um, big carries through the middle that made a a huge start to a number of sets inside our own twenty meters. I'd probably be more critical of Micah because it's comes down to, look, it might come down to the fact that you've got those sorts of conditions which are very rare in rugby league these days. You've got a player who's only taken up rugby league in the last few years, so he's a mature age player when he's taken up rugby league and there's been a couple of moments where he's been caught out recently with some of the finer points, like throwing the ball out, mm-hmm. which he very came very close to last week throwing the ball out forward at the end of the game, which could have constituted a penalty if it had, it had gone a, a metre the other way. And then, as you talked about, the grounding of the ball in the end goal, hands down, put your face your hands down to ground yeah. the ball. You know, it's... Patty cake, it, batty it, cake, it, baker's man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I have to be honest, I think his involvement needs to be increased. You're getting a lot of carries from Blake Ferguson, which is what we expect from Fergo. Mm-hmm. And I think for Micah's size, I'd like to see him far more involved in doing some of the hard yards from our end. So in contrast from Per Champion Data, who are our friends that provide our information at the Cumberland Furrow, um, you've got, uh, I was about to say George Jennings, I'm all over the place. Blake Ferguson, uh, 12 runs for 120 metres. And by the way, uh, George Jennings, well done on the win, mate. Great game. Um, and Mike Acevo, eight runs for 59 metres. So, yeah, you've got pretty much half the work rate from Micah as you did have from Blake. So uh, you definitely want to sort of even that out a little bit just because obviously Blake is a workhorse and is awesome at that sort of thing. But Wong, uh, Wong, Micah can have awesome impact too um, when it comes to rucking it out. So... You want to be leveraging those two uh, big bodies and sort of tiring the def- the defense with those sort of carries. And unfortunately, he just hasn't quite had the involvement in those last few weeks, has he? No, and given the conditions, Michael was all at sea yesterday. There's no other way of describing <laughs> it. He just looked, he just looked like a fish out of water. And and you mentioned like there is a lack of experience there for him, and this would be a, a new experience for sure. Um, playing top flight football in those sort of conditions where it's essentially an Olympic pool out there. Um, because if you know anyone watching was seeing those water explosions every time the ball was carried, it was absolutely insane. But yeah, we, we definitely do need to just keep keep tweaking Micah in that regard. Just keep getting him you know involved and getting to his head and just saying, get in there and get a run, mate. I think um, BA alluded to this in his presser that how do you prepare a team to play under those conditions? No, exactly. You, you just don't. You just don't get those conditions to train on. And we, we've, and, as being party to some of those training sessions, we've seen the team train for wet weather conditions. They will, um, you know, grease up balls and get the boys ready to, you know, have the the testing conditions to some degree. But you can't plan for that sort of con- that sort of game. That is just truly unique. It's not quite that Sharknado game. Was it way back in 2016, 2017? Um, but yeah. it was it wasn't far off either because that was a lot of rain. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing too about football grounds these days is that a team's going to train on the field which drains the best. Yeah, so it's got even more wear and tear. Yeah. So you you just are not going to be ever in a situation where you're training under those sorts of conditions. No, because Cog- Cogra being a legacy park does not have the same drainage advantages of more modern parks, does it? No, that's right. And that's so right. You, you train on a, a grounds that were way drier and then you go to something like Cogra, which isn't a bad ground in and of itself, just when it's torrential, it's not built to, to be played on like that. So the good that comes out of it in terms of that wet weather was obviously Dylan Brown's performance. And he spoke after the game about the uh, familiarity with those sorts of conditions over in New Zealand. 
And you'd have to say that he was someone who seemed to thrive in those conditions. Well, he's the sort of player that is ready to break a tackle and, and almost kick out for a big run in a normal game. And then when you add in that sort of diquity when it comes to tackling and traction, he becomes such a threat, doesn't he? I think Mitch mentioned it in his grades where he said it's something, something along the lines of it's not so much Dylan Brown's elusiveness, but it could be an underestimated strength or, or just the the core power that he oh, has to pull I've, out of I've, I've spoken about this before. He is a pound-for-pound pound champion when it comes to the NRL. There'd be very few players that are as strong as him on a on a kilo-for-kilo, pound-for-pound basis. And you can see that with the way he tackles and the way he runs. Um, he just manages to cut down guys far bigger than him with, uh, not ease, but just great consistency. What about the tackles on Talakai? Yeah. Well, the, you know, Talakai has been a, a man of the moment, hasn't he, for the last couple of weeks because he's uh, very explosive and has that um, fascinating north-south running style where he just tucks the ball under his arms and goes almost kamikaze into the defensive line. And Dylan Brown just chops him down. It doesn't make a difference which back row or centre he's facing. He's going to cut him down. It's an amazing statistic. The, the, the number of tackles that he misses is so low on a weekly basis. And even the ones where he might be credited as a miss. He's done a great job. Like, exactly. It, it's exactly. like the try might have been scored, but it's only because of an insane put down, like we saw with Ronaldo Molotalo this week, where Dylan Brown had corralled him and almost had held him up by himself with like three other Eels missing because of the slippery and slide conditions. And he you know, almost solo saved that try. Just, that, I mean, I've got to credit Molotalo for an insane put down. That was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and, you, you know, you talk about Nathan Queries and all those other guys as the best defensive halves in the competition, but I don't think there's anyone that holds a candle to young Dylan. He's just the way he applies himself to his defense is a credit to how he approaches the game, isn't it? And I think it's something that has been picked up by commentators, just how effective he is in defense. And it's, I suppose, to be fair, it's pretty hard to ignore when you see a halfback or five eight chopping down big blokes that are running at them quite regularly one on one. But it's still nice to see him get the credit that he's due. That's right. Um, other points of business in this game. Um, I thought Murata was quite good on the right edge as much as he... I don't think he struggled last week. I think that we didn't use him correctly. Whereas this week, we gave him a bit of early ball and let him to tear into the defensive line. There was the one error, unfortunately, where he tried to get to his feet quickly and get to play the ball. And it was correctly ruled as an infringement against him because he hadn't got to his feet by um, by the time he put the ball on the ground. Um, the other player that really caught my eye was, once again, the numbers aren't Gordy, but off the bench, Andrew Davey. A couple of huge plays defensively, and um, he clocked in 10 metres run at four runs for four uh, for 40 metres, so doing his job in um, limited opportunities. I think the one thing that has to be said about Andrew Davey is that he never lets BA down no, he's just, when he he's used. does his job, and that, that is all you can ask for for a guy that, given his relative spot in the, the depth charts, he has been fantastic in that regard. It's interesting. I'll make this observation. Andrew Davey is a total professional in his efforts within the game and considering that he's never been a professional rugby league player until he's very late in mm. his life, it's, it's quite an achievement. Yeah, and there was um, a, a particular tackle where it was an outside-inside play between, was it Wade Graham coming to the left edge maybe? Um, yeah. Um, where, you know, it, it could have been a big, a big issue defensively, but he just stayed uh, true to the defensive structure and chopped down the ball. Uh, the ball carrier, sorry, you know, chopped down the ball. Uh, yeah, yeah I, so, sorry, you go. I think now, now that you, if we're talking about edge forwards, uh, I certainly agree with what you have to say about Andrew Davey. I thought Sean Lane played a very smart mm. edge role yeah. yesterday as well. Again, there's no numbers that jump out at you about his performance. But the, if you actually but, watch the tape, the game was way better than the numbers itself. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's probably that's probably true of a lot of the players on the team uh, in yesterday's team was that they for players that aren't used to those sorts of conditions I thought they played decent smart hmm. weather football yeah the whole. like like I mentioned at the start we had a game plan and we executed it for the vast majority of the eighty minutes which was such a contrast to our last four or five weeks where we've flirted with the game plan in patches and that's what's won us the game but we've sort of gone away from that and given the opposition chances to get back into the game. And I think that uh, the errors this week, yes, there was a couple of frustrating ones like Oggy dropping the ball after we scored points, um, giving Cronulla a chance to strike back and whatnot. But in general, I think most of the errors could just be attributed to the absolutely testing conditions more than anything else. 
Um, in, yeah. in regards I, to Sean Lane, I was just going to raise an interesting point. Tactically, it felt like we were running a lot of option plays at Lane. If you if you watch the coverage, we give him we give him the ball in shape where he'd have one or two or three reads based on what I could see on the the left edge attacking line where. His um, first first read might be to uh, sort of hit and spin or, or whatnot and link up outside. He also has the option to tuck the ball or just go straight left. And um, just depending on what the defense was giving him, he, he sort of had the, the read to call or the call to make the read himself. And most of the given the conditions, most of the play was just to um, tuck the ball and carry. But the actual attacking shape was right there to go after the Sharks if the opportunity presented itself. And I think it was a big contribution to... Uh, even though his metres didn't stand out, we made good yardage in some of those blindside plays. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, at, at significant times in the game. And it's one of those moments, again, where you're talking about things that might not have been noticed by uh, a lot of people, but there's still significant contributions to uh, getting the getting territory, uh, turning around, uh, momentum. Uh, yeah, I was I was quite impressed with the game that uh, Sean Lane played. And it, once again, another another bounce back play there because I think he struggled for the last few weeks. I think it's been some probably his worst stretch of form since joining the Eels um, back in uh, 2019. God, I, I think that's a fair call too. So yeah, he's sort of. I mean, and an edge back row is easy to single out as being a, a you know either suboptimal or or a gun depending on the form of the rest of the team because a lot of what their work is predicated on how their halves are going and obviously the halves are predicated on how the forward pack's going. And so Lane, you know, just he's had a couple of bludgers out there but probably influenced by the, the team's overall form as well. So good to see him bounce back. Um, yeah, and aside from that, I thought there was obviously another, much like the Newcastle game, I felt like there was a defensive call to let Wanga Blake uh, attack aggressively, sort of go downhill and try and force an error or, or get a big jam on a... Um, on the ball coming down that right edge with the Eels making a conscious, conscientious effort to sweep from the inside underneath him. So that, that sort of structure worked out all right for most of the game, I think. The Sharks couldn't really take advantage of our right edge the way that you would have thought um, perhaps coming into this game. Yeah, I'm, I'm becoming in two minds about the right edge defence. Obviously, when we're leaking tries, we're leaking them out out on our flanks. There's no there's no doubt about that. And you know, a couple of times people are getting around Micah as well. However, you don't average twelve points a game against you without a lot of things going right. Oh yeah. A hundred percent is that I think that and we at least the way I've written about it this year is that the defence structurally is so good sort of left to right, front to back, except perhaps for on the goal line with that right edge. That is the only real concern I suppose. But, it, but even then, like you said, you, we're averaging 12 points. And unfortunately, with the, the way the Storm have had um, their run last couple of games, we now share the equal best scoring defense with the Melbourne Storm at 162 points against, if I'm not mistaken. Where's that NRL ladder? Yeah, 162 points against. Yeah. Because um, they've had a, a couple, I mean, not, not easy. They've had some good opponents, but they've um, had a, a number of buyout wins that have helped them uh, keep opponents to lesser scores, whereas we've sort of been conceding that right on that average of 12 points or thereabouts last couple of weeks. But yeah, so equal best scoring defense in the NRL. Um, and yeah, you don't, that doesn't happen by mistake after 12 rounds or 13 rounds, sorry. No, it's supporters are sometimes up in arms about, oh, the right side defense. Oh, you know, we're going to get thrashed when teams are taking advantage of this. We're at round 13. Yeah. If we've got a weakness there, and I'm not conceding that there aren't issues around that side, but every coach has had the opportunity to go and come up with a plan to exploit any weakness that's and there. Anyone that's feeling a little bit like Chicken Little about the Parramatta Eels defence, I do encourage you to engage in more games this year across the NRL because if you go watch the rest of the competition this year, you know, I mean, every in every year there's always issues of every team, but this year it feels like... Yes, I know Penrith are travelling pretty well right now, and I know the Melbourne Storm are travelling pretty well right, right now, but both of them have also had their little slip-ups in recent weeks. The Storm were quite mediocre against the Brisbane Broncos for a good chunk of that game, whereas Penrith really struggled against two teams that we belted in the Gold Coast Titans and the North, Co- uh, the North Coast, the North Queensland Cowboys. So every team's got its issues at the moment, and that's been sort of exacerbated by the, the COVID season. So Parramatta's issues certainly are there, but they're manageable. Yeah. I'm quite happy to 
really up the points at this stage. There is no doubt that at the moment you've had Melbourne Storm as the form team. Yeah, you go, in my opinion, you go Storm 1 if they're at full strength. Obviously, they've had some issues there with Cameron Smith getting an AC joint injury, who should be right for our game, Um, and Cameron Munster re-injuring that knee, which will put him out for a couple of weeks. But yes, Storm 1 and then Penrith 2, would you say? uh, Yes, and Penrith, they look like they might have that extra gear that the Roosters and the Storm, we know that they can go to. Penrith are now showing that extra gear. Penrith have a collection of explosive players who, when they turn it on, when they combine well, almost look unstoppable. However, they have not escaped their down moments. And you could even see that in the second half where Nathan Cleary has made the accusation of that the referee managed uh, Canberra back into that game. I would also suggest as well that Penrith's second half wasn't very impressive at all. Yeah, after the, the intensity reaching dialed off. A, oh, the, the, the intensity certainly dialed off. In fact, if I was to look at some of the more impressive opening moments, or, or no, I shouldn't just say opening moments, but impressive moments in a game, one of the most impressive moments I saw from a game was the opening that the West Tigers threw at us. If you were at anyone at the ground, would it, if you had seen the players in motion and the ball movement that was going on in that first 20, 25 minutes in the form of Harry Grant, that was as strong as I've seen from any team this year. It was right up there with some of the best that Penrith have thrown. But Penrith have, have shown that they can really notch up the points when they're in that sort of mood. As a complete team, I think Penrith do have that potential on paper. They've obviously got a, a good halfback in Nathan Cleary, a good forward pack that's been spearheaded by uh, Fisher-Harris and your boy is Ayo. Um, and obviously they've got the explosive outside backs. The only criticism I will levy at them is that there's seven weeks to go until we enter sudden-death football or, or pseudo-sudden-death football if you're a top four team. There is, a, there is a chance that they are peaking too early because if you watch the Roosters under Trent Robinson who almost every year will go through this sort of origin, not slump, but that, that will slow down their play and then start to build towards that crescendo uh, for the finals. The, the Panthers have sort of been pedaled to the metal all season, and that, that might come back to haunt them. It might. It might not. They might just go red hot through the finals and tear all the way through the grand final. But if I was to criticise the Panthers for one thing, it would be that maybe they're peaking too early. Look, they're very much a momentum team. I know that much. If you withstand them throwing all sorts of attack and attacking shapes at you when they are at their peak in a game, if you can withstand that, if you can turn it around, I know Nathan Cleary has come along in leaps and bounds this year as a game management halfback, but I think there's certainly weaknesses there still to be found. And like you, I have that suspicion that maybe they are peaking quite early. Maybe we're seeing the absolute best from them now. Uh, but credit where it's due, they they look the goods at the moment whether they can continue that into the finals as you say that's that's another matter um just maybe is there anything more that you want to take from the game on the weekend because i'm not sure that the apart from us following game plans and a few people having nice return to form like sean lane I don't know that there's too much more you can take out of a game. And that, that's why I called it a back, a back to basics game, wasn't it? Because between the conditions and the game plan, we just executed fundamental footy. And that's where I really, I know that Brad was a little, he, he, I wouldn't say he was down the team, but he said that there was you know, a lot of issues out of that game still. But that's what I was so encouraged by in that performance, in that we had the game plan. Yes, it was simple, but we went out and executed it. And you could see, especially in that last, I want to say 15 minutes, everyone in that team realized, okay, we've got to start respecting the ball twice as much. So they just, every every carry locked on, like the ball was locked in. Every play the ball, we gave up a little bit of play the ball speed in order to make sure there was no silly play the ball error. Every kick was crisp. Like everything in that last 15 minutes, yeah, it wasn't played at, you know, 100 miles an hour, but they managed to just lock it down. And that's why I was, I was not chuffed, but happy at the end of the game. It was glaringly obvious the carries wasn't it the yeah. locking that ball you could almost see 
like both arms wrapped around almost cradling the mm-hmm. ball in the carries. And to be honest, I was looking at it and thinking, yeah, it's what I it's what I expect from this team. Strangely enough, I was reasonably comfortable as we were in that last 10-15 minutes. Yeah. I agree. Is that um, I had I wouldn't say anxiety, but there were some palpitations during the period before where the errors had creaked in, and Cronulla were getting a sniff. And I will also throw a shout out to Junior Polo here, who made a fantastic scrum call to um secure a tight head. Which, I, if I'm not mistaken, is that our second of the season? I think we got another yeah. tight head earlier this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he in a clutch moment to turn a, an error from the Eels into a possession in the Cronulla red zone. So very very well done from Junes. But yes, um, and, once we switched on that last 15 minutes, it felt like the Sharks had to produce something insane and they couldn't. I thought it was such a telling moment because Cronulla were trying to be quite clever with holding the ball in the scrum. Mm-hmm. And really, on those occasions in matches where you see a ball won against the head and the referee immediately just calls it back to be fed again, in this instance, there was nothing could be done because Cronulla had clearly won the scrum. And we're trying to milk a differential penalty. Yeah, they were trying to to milk that. The ball was won by by a scrum, a, a push in the scrum, <laughs> and you know, and you get you get the smart ass comments that are coming from coaches like, oh, so what? Where you're allowed to push in the scrum? Sometimes you're not allowed to push in the scrum. The ball was sitting there in the scrum. Yeah, it's not as if they had the, every the chance push to use happened. It. Yep, it's not as if there was a, a a push that happened before the ball was fed or that you will sometimes see pulled up That's right. by referees, uh, you know, where they ask you just to hold and, you know, get the ball in. This was that instance where they were trying to be smart, held, hold the ball at the back of the scrum. If you've got a, a set scrum on the other side, uh, a set pack on the other side, man, what else are you going to do? You're going to push. And this is one, one area scrum. where I think, I know that, I've been critical of the Eels not being as, as great an exponent of the one-on-one strip as other teams in the last two seasons, given those new guidelines that are introduced in the 2019 season. But on the flip side, I think that we lead the way in scrum aggression. Um, I think there's no other team that's even in the same postcode as us when it comes to trying to exploit scrums against the feed and whatnot, because we've done multi- we've either forced errors or gotten multiple tight heads in seasons in the last couple of years on the back of our cord, uh, our cord pushes and sort of identifying the opportunities. So well done to both the boys and the coaching staff there because that is a that, that little sort of – I look at games, you look at areas where you can – I'll say exploit because that's what Melbourne Storm and all the other good teams do. You exploit uh, sort of grey areas or um, inefficiencies and that is absolutely an area where the Eels have carved out their own little niche in the game. And I think a big part of that is that it's not overplayed. Yeah, and exactly. So it still is using, a trump card. Yeah, they're using the moments where they're not pushing as soon as the ball goes in the scrum. They're they're pushing when they can see that it's taken a while for that ball to come out, and they're uh, exploiting that capacity to uh, to push against a, a a ball that's been won cleanly by the opposition, and then they're winning it back. That's it. And they can't be accused of of striking early, of collapsing a scrum, of, you know, any any sort of indiscretion. It's just a, a straight-out push, timed perfectly. Okay. So, so Parramatta Eels 14, Cronulla Sharks 12, takes the Eels to 11-2, and two, keeps them alongside the Melbourne Storm on 11-2, and two, and obviously that half a win behind the Penrith Panthers. So that top three still is that incredible, incredibly tight shootout pending games against both the Panthers and Storm for Parramatta upcoming. Let's move on because we and, we've, and uh, just just very quickly too the uh, with that storm against the Roosters this week is either going to open up a gap That's, yeah completely almost completely back. seal off the top three or give the Eels a chance to jump the Melbourne Storm exactly so yeah um it, it's a good result either way for Parramatta depending on how you want to look at it um but moving yep. on now um a big week for the wrong reasons off the field uh, we've had three biosecurity breaches so we had uh, the most recent one was Tavita Pangai Jr who got a I suppose he got a haircut apparently at a noted bikey's barber. And then you had uh, uh, Paul Vaughan who ate out at a restaurant. And then probably the most egregious one, um, part of the Project Apollo uh, committee put together to restart the, the um, season, uh, big old Wayne Bennett was eating out at a place that I've eaten out actually um, at the top of um, Norton Street, uh, Grappa, a nice little Italian joint. Um, he, went out there, he went out there for his arm partner. Do you recommend the, the feed there? It's it's not cheap, but it's not bad. 
So if you if you're going to do it like once a year or something like that, it's not a bad Italian place to go to. Well, obviously, it's something that fits in with, yeah, with uh, Bennett's with Uncle Wayne. Yeah, so he's got a, he's got a good taste in restaurants, but unfortunately, it's going to um, set him out of the game for two weeks. So the fourteen day um, quarantine protocol enacted, um, and it's the same for Paul Vaughan, if I'm not mistaken. Um, did Pangai end up getting the same punishment? I'm not as up to date on. Uh, yeah, the so I, I will assume that Pangai would have gotten yeah. that fourteen day quarantine uh, protocol, um, and then the fines. Uh, was it ten thousand? Twenty grand. Twenty grand. There you go. So twenty grand for Bennett. Yeah. Yeah, twenty grand for Bennett, and then uh, Paul Vaughan. I'm just going to open this article and hope that the video doesn't play. He he was ten, wasn't he? That sounds and right. The, and the, the Broncos staff that got done, they were five. Oh, and Al, Alan Langer as well. That was the other yes, one. That, um, yeah. Uh, another Alfie Langer was another <laughs> another protocol breach. So yeah, not a great week. I think I don't know why, but. Um, it's just the number of um, players and, and staff lapsing their concentration. So thankfully, um, barring Stefano's little um, brush with um, some team, uh, some 20s teammates and friends out at Newcastle, there hasn't been any um, sign of a protocol breach from Parramatta. So knock on wood that the boys keep their heads in the right place there because that can derail your season very quickly. Um, Look, it could. Let's, let's be honest. The sort of indiscretions that were made by some of those individuals cannot just derail the season of their club, but it could have derailed the entire NRL season if there'd been an infection that had been passed back to the players. And then all of a sudden you've got the impact that would be involved with the, whoever that team had played. Uh, you would have, you could have had a, a, an entire team that was put into lockdown. Mm-hmm. It, there goes the draw there goes um, the integrity of the competition. It's just an absolutely ridiculous thing to breach. Look, it is obviously tough for these players. But it's to be, tough. It's tough for the yeah, entire world, mate. That's the thing, isn't that's, it? That's the thing. And there are expectations that come with these players that are maybe a little bit more above what the rest of us mm-hmm. in Australia well, probably, obviously not Victoria at the moment. <laughs> the rest of us in New South Wales and Queensland are expected to go through. However, these fellas have been given an opportunity to continue on to their professional sport under conditions where uh, there was a, a, a much bigger lockdown and almost seemed like no opportunity of sport getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. at the stage that, that they got well, back if in. Any, anyone, anyone that's tracking professional sport in America will know that the NBA has gone into complete ISO lockdown inside Disney World. They've literally quarantined their entire... They said they finished their regu- regular season early, kick, finished their regular season early, kicked out the teams that weren't a chance of a finals, said, okay, we'll have a play-in for the last few teams and then we'll play our finals, all within Disney World, whereas the MLB, the baseball competition, have just got issues with COVID-19 everywhere. And the NFL are still in their preseason, so they're they're sort of trying to deal with that with like that ten foot stick, trying to poke you know poke it away and say you know how are we going to do this? So the fact that the NRL is back up and running as it is should not be taken for granted by these players. No, and obviously as you mentioned, the most egregious offender was Wayne Bennett. Yeah, the I think even even though it sounds like it was impossible to surpass the stupidity of his breach, the arrogance yeah. afterwards. That's the big issue. And even even his son-in-law, Ben Eichen, called him out on it, saying the, the arrogance in which he handled the uh, the question from the, pre- uh, the the presser and the, the journos was just staggering. One has to wonder where his head's at, in all seriousness. Where Where is his... I, I honestly don't see the Wayne Bennett of 10 years ago doing something no, like that. No, absolutely. He, he was a man that, like all great coaches, put the team first. Um, he, he protected the team at any cost. Even it meant to, he like, even the way he, he handled the journos, there was certainly an arrogance in how he handled the journos back then, but that was in order to protect the team. Um, you know, he, if it was a, a silly question or a question that sort of attacked the player, he'd always be dismissive of it because he was protecting the team. And in this case, he wasn't protecting the team because the, the whole way he handled it between going out to the, the lunch and then the presser was just a shit show. 
So, and yeah. for for a man that was on the um the Apollo uh, Project Apollo committee, it is very disappointing, isn't it? I just think this is a man who should have absolute be be given absolutely zero to do with any planning, any co-direction in the future. Just put a red line through him, and that's not to dis that's not meant as a mark of disrespect for Wayne Bennett. What it's what I am suggesting is what I said before. I don't think this is the Wayne Bennett of 10 years ago. I think for whatever reasons, his decision-making is compromised. His thought processes are compromised. And I don't think he can be a party to any future directions of the code. I agree. I agree 100%. Um, and on that bombshell, maybe we'll move on to some more encouraging news. Um, what caught your eye in training this week, mate? Well, on the, I wanted to give a shout-out to Trent Elkin because there's credit that's given to the players. There's credit that's given to the coaches. Not always enough because, you know, I'm, a, you know, I'm always a big fan of uh, the coaching staff at the Eels and there's far too many ridiculous critics of the coaching of BA and his staff that has been there over the years that is a sore point with me. However, when it comes to getting the players on the field, a lot of the uh, athletics performance staff that are there very much deserve a, a big, uh, big amount of kudos heading their way. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about Tran Elkin. Now, at the end of last year, when... Cuzzy was moved. Well, Cuzzy left under really um, short notice. He took up a position with St George, and I was naturally concerned because I thought he did a decent job with the full conditioning over the previous eighteen months mm -hmm. that he was there. And on such short notice, where are you going to find someone who is an elite trainer? And they've managed to get Trent Elkin back to the club. He was there briefly in, I think it was 2013. Uh, Correct. And so he joined us prior to the Asada scandal breaking out at Cronulla. And so that's he, right. he'd, he'd sort of been the head trainer back then. And then once the scandal broke, he was caught up in the, uh, the I wouldn't say the crossfire because he was, he was, you know, directly involved at Cronulla as the head trainer. But yeah, he, he was then the, uh, part of the blowout wasn't he yeah and he was exonerated of that's, any that's, yeah, so when, I, when I say he was directly involved I mean he was actually at the club at the time so that's why he was brought into the focus whereas um, all the um, actual wrongdoings were uh, put on to the shoulders of Flanagan and then uh, I forget his name now but he had the stupid nickname the gazelle and that's right <laughs> oh my god it's been so long even though it's not that long ago so yeah he, yeah. he was one of the victims of the entire process, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And it was terrific that, he's, that he was exonerated of any, any sort of wrongdoing in that because he's brought quite a bit to the, the club this year. 100%. Now, I, I watched the pre-season from the opening session onwards and what I noticed about the way that... Trent structured his pre-season conditioning and I'm only making this observation from the outside in, in uh, any sort of side word as to the, the plan of attack uh, with, with conditioning. But my observation from the outside looking in was that it was little increments that were there Rather than the uh, throwing the throwing everything at the players in yeah, those opening weeks, exactly. Oftentimes, I've seen pre seasons begin with enormous physical demands on the players in those first few weeks. You've seen vision from different clubs of players throwing up as they're <laughs> as they're taking on some of their some of their tasks. You even had that situation last year where. And famously, yeah, were pushing collapsed. the king. That's right. Yeah, yeah. In in trying to push the king. Now, this year, what I saw was that incremental uh, increase every week with 
what was expected of the players. There was no rude shock to start the season. And then probably a number of weeks into the pre-season, Murph walked past us and said, as we were watching training about to start, and he said, look out today. And it's go time. Sudden, and <laughs> it was it was go time. Now the players had built up to it, but it was I would suggest it was the toughest session I'd seen in the last seven preseasons of training that I'd watched. It it was a brutal session. But the thing was the players were up to it. That was that was the big that was the big difference. I've seen really tough pre-season sessions, as I said, where you you see players, you know, being physically ill and what have you. And it was a it was a horrible. It, it, when I say it was horrible, it was it was tough to watch how how this particular session was. And then that sort of became a bit of the standard. Now he he didn't he didn't make a mess oh, I'm trying to find the right words he didn't overtax he didn't overtax the players I was wouldn't say that every session was like that but I did see one or two sessions after that were that were a step up again and it just seemed that he got it perfect he's he's got the team to the point where I don't have any doubts that they're going to go physically go the full 80 minutes. And, I think there's plenty of occasions where we finish better physically than the opposition. I mean, and our scoring our scoring record in the second half speaks towards that, doesn't it, where we've comprehensively outscored our opponents in the second half of games. So both defensively and offensively, we've clicked into gear far more than our opponents. And the other area where I'll, I'll level a little bit of extra credit at both Elkin and the extended training staff is that not only did they have to navigate an extra preseason in which they've managed the team by distance, obviously expertly given how the boys have come back. And obviously part of that, the responsibility of the onus and the credit falls on the players there for not uh, laxing and not bludging. But the boys the boys in the training and conditioning staff obviously did a fantastic job of guiding the players from distance. But two, is that we've had our own injury issues in, in like the last couple of months, right? We've obviously had Mitchell Moses. Uh, Ryan Madison was a concussion issue, which isn't really... Uh, in the hands of anyone in terms of responsibility as far as preparing, because you can't manage concussions in the way you can build a body up. Um, but, you know, we've had a, a number of players out. But now we're getting right with seven games ago. We've sort of gotten through, we've been managed through that little injury apocalypse that we had for a good chunk, where we had, again, back to a broken hands, the race donor, which again, not soft tissue injuries, which speaks towards it's not a conditioning issue, which is once again a tick in the column of Trent Elkin and his um, auxiliary staff. Um, so the only soft, like major soft, um, uh, soft tissue injuries were Kane Evans and Mitchell Moses. And Moses, unfortunately, had injured himself in that second preseason. So once again, uh, the, the training staff have done such a stellar job this year and it really shouldn't be slept on as to how important they are to us going deep into the finals. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that we've got, Oh, what we hit a peak of, I think it was seven players that were out one week. Was, Correct. Was probably the the peak that we hit. And you mentioned the apart from the fractures, uh, you know the, the well, including the fractures, most of the most of the injuries were ones that couldn't be avoided. Um, however, the the rehab work that's been that's been done this year, the the conditioning work that's been done this year, uh, and touch wood. It's meant that we've had uh, quite a, a, a healthy roster for a large part of the season thus far in what has been a challenging season. And I'm, gay, I'm glad that you mentioned the period during the lockdown because these pl- the players obviously were training on their own or in very small groups when they were able to start training in very small groups. But you still had all of that preparation overseen by the the likes of Trent Elkin, mm-hmm. and I think there's a, a lot of credit has to go to for our improved physical conditioning this year in some of these close matches. There is no doubt that we are playing better disciplined football, but I think alongside the better the better discipline is if you're in a better physical condition, you're less likely to have the brain fades because absolutely you're you're 
you know that your body's going to go the distance and, and you're not even that those sorts of issues are, are going to impact less I mean, on the way that you in play. A, in a very simplistic manner, think about your own decision-making when you're under fatigue or under extreme stress or any sort of like uh, tough you know, conditions and think about how you can slip up in everyday stuff and then you magnify that in the context of a game where you've got to be laser-focused on you know catching every ball and making sure every carry you've got the ball skilled correctly. If you're tired, it certainly leads to an explosion in error rate. So the fact that the boys are fitter is a huge part of our campaign this year. Now, yeah. I hate to do this to you, mate, but I spoke to our friend Dr. O from Tech on the Mail for the week, and he has vowed to wow us with some massive NRL news. He's on the line now. Do you reckon we should give him another shot this week? Well, I've done a bit of checking myself, and the doc is apparently underrated as an NRL and so. However, uh, I'm prepared to give him another shot. Welcome back, Doc. Thanks, fellas. It's truly your pleasure to have me on the show. So what have you got for us this week, Doc? Massive news on the NRL biosecurity front. It would appear that a prominent first grader has been caught breaking protocols by appearing with a group of girls in a TikTok video. I can't reveal who it is, but his name rhymes with Nathan Dreary. Wait, so you're exclusively revealing that Nathan Cleary has been in a TikTok video. You're a true news hound, mate. I've got so much more. Pressure is mounting on NRL CEO Todd Greenberg to hold on to the top job. I'm tipping that he won't be in the seat for much longer. I think that'll do us, mate, unless you've got something else. Just a bit of celebrity spotting. My spies tell me that Clint Eastwood is lobbed in Sydney and has been spotted dining out with a much younger female companion at Grappa's Restaurant in Leichhardt. You heard it first. If you're looking for value for your punting, take the Warriors to beat Manly. You have truly outdone yourself this week, Doc. Just, just one more thing, fellas. If you're ever in Brisbane, I can recommend a top joint for a haircut. I think we'll give it a pass there, Doc. And I've got an interest in a sports memorabilia business. And I've arranged for a couple of rare items to be sent to you this week. They're half price COD in Troy. Well, I'll tell you what, that bloke's got all the integrity of Brian Waldron in a two for one accounting book sale. <laughs> anyway, that, um, that, that sort of segues us nicely into the round 14 matchup where the Parramatta Eels will be ho- hosting. Am I right in saying this? Uh, Parramatta yes. Eels hosting the St. George Illawarra Dragons. So Parramatta um, should be, I won't say 1-17 to 17 because there will be one notable inclusion as per Brad Arthur during the week. Ryan Madison should be clearing the concussion protocols this week and will take his place in the starting lineup. So who makes way for the big man? Gee, that's a tough call, isn't it? You'd have to think, even though he wouldn't deserve it, that Andrew Davey might come into calculations mm-hmm. for the omission. It's probably between him and Stoney as to who misses out. Because and uh, I suppose the fact that Maddo is generally an 80-minute player and Stoney can cover dummy half at an emergency sort of leverages it in his favour, doesn't it? That's right. Uh, so you've, again, then got uh, Murata reverting back to a bench role and knowing that Murata is far, quite as we discussed earlier, he's far better suited to the middle, but knowing that he can cover an edge. Exactly. And, and if you had... Uh, Stoney there who can cover the edge as well as perhaps cover the dummy half position if needed there, you'd probably say that it would be a spot that would be vacated now by Andrew Davey, as tough as that call might be. I could be wrong, it could end up being Ray Stone that makes way, given the performances of Andrew Davey. So a tough call coming up, I think, for BA and the coaching staff. And as for the Dragons, they're not going to be coming into this game 1-17. to Um I believe that Tariq Sims hurt himself last week, and Zach Lomax as well sort of got his knee twisted up in a in the act of scoring a try. But I think he will be cleared to play. So, uh, yeah, you think even if he's cleared to play, you'd have to think there's going to be a huge question mark. That was a that was a bit of a uh, angle lock, wasn't it? Sort of Kurt Angle would be proud of that little ankle twist right there. It was a nasty little piece of work as he sort of scored the try. The I'm, I'm not sure who the tackle was, but they rolled up on his ankle and lifted up off the ground. So I'm pretty sure that I saw Lomax tap out. 
<laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised. I would have tapped out of the um, amount of pressure applied on my ankle and knee in that sort of um, situation. But yeah, the, the St. George Allure Dragons, what do we make of it, mate? Because they've been up and down. Um, I think they're more down than up lately. And the, we've gone back to Mary being safe for the season to Mary being back on the chopping block. Uh, do we are we are sort of wary of the Wounded Dragons? Do we think I think we've matched up with them pretty well in recent years? But there's we, been a bit of mail coming out from the Dragons that Mary is only gets a one third say in team selections. Yeah, I, I believe that they've spoken about the elevator responsibilities of Flanagan and the fact that McGregor doesn't even going back probably didn't have full control of team selections, which is kind of insane when you think about it. Because uh, you know when you're a coach, the whole point is that you coach the players and you have like you might not have a full control of recruitment and retention, but in terms of um, Team West Tuesday and, and game day, it's your show, right? I just cannot fathom the logic that's being applied here because if you genuinely want the best results, you want your coach to be working under the best possible conditions, and I cannot see how any coach can have his assistance having combined you, more say than him. You're being officially, like not unofficially, but officially white-anted, aren't you? Like, yeah. I mean, and may, well, I'm, not, I'm not saying sitting here saying that Mary McGregor is an amazing coach, but just structurally, it, it does not speak well to the Dragons to do that. I, I cannot, look, humans being as we are, it's going to, there is no way that that can't impact his thinking, his, his thought processes around the team. You, if you're constantly looking, if you're const constantly questioning, why is this player selected? I don't want this bloke in the team. And you'd have to think there's going to be, mo there's been moments like that already this year. How on earth that can be thought that it's going to benefit the team when, as you say, it is like almost officially white-anding him and you'd also have to think the NRL has to look into what they've allowed to have happen. Well, there, obviously, the with the, supposed to be. the strong stipulation surrounding Shane Flanagan's no. uh, coaching provisions in the NRL, that is a. And I'm not sure, it was on NRL 360, it might have been Benny Elias, who was almost flaunting the fact that Shane Flanagan has these responsibilities and it left Paul Kent flabbergasted. He's like, but he, he can't be doing that. Like, he's not allowed to do that. So if Flanagan yeah. does have these elevated responsibilities that transcend that of a, the assistant coach, the Dragons could be in trouble. Yeah, and I would say rightly so. I felt many weeks ago when there was that loss and McGregor was interviewed on uh, Fox straight after the game and he was put on the spot about what does this mean for you, your job? Are you gone? And I thought he put on an incredibly, I don't think brave is the right word. I had a lot of admiration for the way that he faced up to the questions and, and had a real strength of character in the way that he said he wasn't going to be giving up. Mm -hmm. the, the club didn't, you know, the club could make whatever decision it wanted to make, but he wasn't a quitter. He wasn't going to be giving up. And I think he's carried that through as best as he can as a coach. And like you, I don't know whether he's a good coach or not. Obviously St. George supporters will have a differing view maybe to people from the outside. They, they might be highly critical of a coach who hasn't delivered them the performances that they feel they should get from their team. I, however, I can look at their team and I can find holes in that roster all over the place. And whether those holes are a result of him, or whether they're re the result of other people doing the recruitment and selections there, because obviously he's not even getting the full say in his team selections. Whatever the case may be, um, it's it's not ideal conditions for him as a coach. So, um, yeah, I've, I, I can understand why they're sitting on, where they are on the table right now. Getting back to whether they are going to be a threat this coming week, I think they've pulled the right rein with how they're using Dufty now in attack. He, he certainly seems to be a different player, doesn't he? He's gone from almost Bevan French-esque. Uh, I mean, I love Bevan at his peak, but uh, at his worst, you say Bevan French-esque liability, right? In terms of the opposition defense, ragdolling Dufty and sort of bullying him around the park to being a player that can operate in space and be that extra halfback and sort of use that speed as a weapon. Yes, 
So he's, so they he's pulled, pulled one, the right rein there. One area, though, that I will, I will say that teams have keyed into him in recent weeks is that I think that opposition teams have been telling their wingers to be way more aggressive about where they line up in the defensive line for the chance of taking the interception because they've obviously keyed yeah. into Matt Dufty, loves to throw that flat ball across the line. Yeah. So that's something to watch out for as to whether the, how the Eels choose to tackle that because obviously the counterplay to that is to put in that kick because if the wing is up, it puts so much pressure on the fullback to get across to cover that little grubber kick. Um, the other player that we touched on earlier with the knee injury, but he's also been one of their form players, is young Zach Lomax. Um, he's been really good. Once again, like Dufty, it's just they've given the ball early and in space and allowed him to go one-on-one of his opposition centre and create the uh, the two-on-one overlap with a bit of footwork and a nice little flick ball. Yeah. He, he's going to uh, line up against... Uh, is it Michael Jennings? He'll be up against Michael Jennings, yeah. correct. He's right edge yeah, center. Yeah. 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 So to our advantage, we've probably got one of the best defensive centers in the in the competition lining up against Lomax. So I think we've got the capacity to shut down any threat that Lomax might present. That might end up being uh, the, um, the individual Michael matchup Jennings. of the game, though, wouldn't it? Um, between Jennings and Lomax. Uh, so that's definitely one to keep an eye on during the course of that game. The other big out that we sort of mentioned way earlier in the podcast but uh, didn't get to just now is Paul Thorne. Obviously, yes. two weeks of quarantine isolation, so uh, their best forward is out, which leaves alongside Tarek Sims, who's been quite good for him. So that leaves them with a front row pairing of, uh, gosh, Blake Laurie, and I think they played Frizzell in the front row this week, it looks like, according to the NRL team sheet. So, gosh... I mean, they've got Josh Kerr on the bench. He could be promoted to starting. Trent Marin's on the bench, and he's that sort of hybrid prop lock role. Where the, do you look? Where do you think their weaknesses lie, Forty? I think that we should win through the middle pretty comprehensively, based on on the form of both Junior and Reg. And then, I think this is the sort of game where our halves should really take control. And if it's just like on the back of them running the ball for themselves, I think they they should be the difference. So between the props and the halves, I think that's where the difference will be because they've put Ben Hunt back to five eighth with the uh, well Adam Coyne's back though. So Corey Norman got dropped and uh, this week, but before that they had Ben Hunt at dummy half and uh, the work the workhorse hooker Cameron McInnes at lock forward, and that was working pretty well for him. But they've they've reverted back to Ben Hunt at half with the uh, drop of Corey Norman, and I just. I mean, I'll say this knowing that he's probably going to cover us up because I said it, but I just don't rate Ben Hunt and halfback that much. I feel like he just, he doesn't play, the the game doesn't flow at the right speed for him at, at halfback. You know who he is as far as I'm concerned? He is, he is to the St. George Dragons what Chris Sandow was for us. Yeah, there's, there, yeah, there is definitely a, a, cor- a correlation there for sure. And by, and by that I mean, He's a rocks and diamonds yeah. player, and and you, certainly not. you sort of prefaced what you you know your comment on him with saying that he could carve us. Yeah, up, <laughs> you, know, you having said that, and that's the thing about him is that every so often he'll pull out a diamonds game, which makes you think where that he's worth he looks close like to that he's a, yeah. yeah, yeah, and you say, well, this is a. I can see why this bloke plays Origin. I can see why this bloke plays international football because he's he's a class player, and then you'll get four or five weeks of very average play, then you'll get two or three weeks of absolute rocks. And the difference, as Sterling once said in his criticism of Chris Sandow, the difference between, if you're a quality half, the difference between your best and your worst should not be very much at all. A hundred percent. And that's that's why I hold someone like Cooper Cronk in such high esteem, even if he wasn't, I mean, not to say that Jonathan Thurston wasn't consistent, he was obviously a very consistent player, but Cooper Cronk was the just epitome of a professional that never let his game dip beneath a seven. Like he was always a seven plus, if not, you know, um, a nine or 10 on occasion. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd have to say that one of the improvements in Mitch Moses halfback play in the last 18 months has been that the difference between Nar- narrowing the differential. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, the yeah, the volatility, that, that, the the um the variety of of performances, they're way more consistent, and that has been huge. And yeah, and people probably who are critical of Mitch Moses might say that we need we need more nine and ten games, uh, nine out of ten games from him. 
However, the fact that he's moving towards his worst being a, a six or a seven out of 10 is a trend in the right direction. And Agreed. again, there'll be critics who'll say, gee, it's taken him a long time to get to that point. He's well, not, maybe so. But he's also not if, that old. Yeah. It's easy to yeah. forget, but he is not that old. And you, you look at how his development trajectory has gone as opposed to someone like his old partner in crime, Luke Brooks, and you don't, don't you know, take it for granted, please. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I'm like you, I think we've got an edge in the forwards. I think we've got an edge in the halves. I'm comfortable with saying that the Eels will get a win this week. I'm never comfortable in predicting margins because I'm quite happy for us to win by one point as I am for us to win by 30 or 40 points. So, let's take a win this week. And we get ever closer to a nice little matchup against the Storm in the not too different distant future. That's right. So um, that's it, folks. So take take the two points for that win over Cronulla in in um, torrential conditions, and we'll look forward to that Dragons matchup. We'll catch you next week in the round fourteen review. Thanks for stopping by. Cheers.